This morning, I've titled the sermon, The Heart of Discipleship. And I've done that because I, I feel like this passage that we're going to look at together really captures the essence of what discipleship is. And we're going to see that discipleship centers around uh, a one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it centers around one purpose, and that is gathering people to follow Jesus Christ. And so the big idea is, is just what I've said. Discipleship is Jesus-centered and fishing-focused. At the heart of discipleship is a commitment to following Jesus and a commitment to gathering others to follow Him. So the church has really got one person that we're about and we've got one mission that we're about. And every everything else that a church does, everything else that a disciple does ought to flow into that river. There's a lot of debate in, in a lot of Christian circles about what is discipleship, what is a disciple. There, I think there's a, a prevailing idea in, in the minds of a lot of people that, that there are Christians and then there are disciples. And disciples are like the super saints, people who are actively engaged in spiritual disciplines, people who are actively engaged in sharing their faith. If you read the New Testament, it's hard to find that distinction. The assumption in the, in the New Testament is that those who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ will be disciples. They will, will devote themselves to following Jesus in discipleship. So, so as we think about discipleship, a lot of people may think of themselves as disciples. So almost two in three Americans identify themselves as Christian. So that's including all the, that's the big bucket. That's the Roman Catholics, Protestants, even Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, people who would self-identify as a Christian. But I could ask you, are two in three Americans following Jesus from your, based on your observation? I don't think they are. Narrow it down a little more. About one in four Americans identify themselves as evangelical. So, so about 25%. These numbers are from 2014, so it may be even a little less now. Um, but still, almost one in four Americans identify as evangelical, which would mean Bible-believing, cross-clinging people who believe Jesus is God, that He died, that He was raised from the dead. Bible-believing Christians, we would say. One in four identify themselves as evangelicals. I'll tell you, from my observation, I don't think one in four Americans are really following Jesus the way that the New Testament describes that people who identify with Jesus should. So the problem with statistics like this, when you go around asking people, are you a Christian? And you go around, and anybody who's done a little bit of evangelism knows that, that when you go around asking people if they're a Christian, a lot of people will say yes, but if you dig a little deeper, you find out that they're not a Christian the way that the New Testament describes a Christian, right? People answer these questions, and they, they identify themselves a certain way, but the way that they see themselves, the way that they perceive themselves, or the way that they would like to be perceived is not necessarily the way that God perceives them. Jesus warned his disciples uh, in Matthew 7, verse 21. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And so so the problem that we're talking about is the problem of nominal Christianity. People identify themselves in Christians, but they're basically Christian in name only. 
um, and there's no no fruit in their life that would would convict them of of being a follower of Christ. And so, a lot of times we confuse discipleship, being a genuine follower of Christ, with external things. Discipleship is not church attendance and membership. It may include church attendance and even church membership, but in and of itself, being a member of a church does not make you a bona fide follower of Jesus Christ. Correct beliefs, doctrine. This is a, this is a big one in, in evangelical culture. We think that if we, if we know the right answers to the right questions, then we are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. But in, in the book of James, he says that you believe that God is one, well, you're doing good. Even the demons believe that, and they tremble. So correct doctrine in and of itself is not adequate to make you a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ. And then third, we confuse morality and ethics with Christian discipleship. And uh, especially, this this really works itself out in right-wing politics, where we seem to to have this idea that if we could just, if Christians could just get control of the legislating bodies of our country, then we could create a, a moral society with the, almost with the assumption that we can convert people from the outside in. But Jesus said that conversion and even transformation of the culture in which you live can only happen from the inside out. Numerous studies have demonstrated that culture does not follow public policy. Public policy always follows culture. If two-thirds of Americans were really Christians, if two-thirds of Americans were really following Jesus we would not be debating abortion. We would put it on the ballot and we would vote and it would be done. But the fact is that two-thirds of Americans are not really Christians. Two-thirds of Americans probably value their personal right to make choices than they value human life. And that's why abortion is legal and will remain legal because public policy follows public opinion. Morality and ethics... Uh, is a is a backwards way of trying to make disciples. We have to engage people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and see them born again from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll see change in our culture. So discipleship is not those things. It may include all those things. A genuine follower of Jesus Christ should become a more moral person. A genuine follower of Christ should have some correct beliefs and a genuine... A uh, follower of Christ will be involved in, in Christian community, I believe. And so this is how I would, my definition of what a disciple is. A disciple is committed in principle and in practice to the person and purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so I'm not claiming that a genuine disciple is a perfect person. But their lives are marked by submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and by continual progress in pursuing the the values of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's committed in principle and practice to the person and purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ. The passage we're going to look at this morning is going to give us, um, it shows us that person and that, that purpose that Jesus has called people to discipleship for. And it also gives us a positive example for how to respond, how to respond to that call. And so, let's uh, read this 
passage, and then I want to pray for us. He said, would you mind standing with me just as we honor the reading of God's word? These are the words of God. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were casting a net into the sea because they were fishers or fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Heavenly Father, as we as we dive into your word in these next few brief minutes that we have, God, would you encounter us, would you give us a vision for what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ with radical abandon? Uh, Would you convict our hearts? If there's anything in our hands that we need to drop to follow you, Father, would you reveal it to to every listener here? Um, Would you you hide me? Would you protect the words in my mouth? Uh, Set a guard over my mouth and and help me to speak your word rightly um, with grace and truth. Uh, We ask you to reign over this time together and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Back to the big idea from this passage that discipleship is Jesus-centered. So Jesus said, he, he said, follow who? Follow me. He didn't say follow the Pope. He didn't say follow the leader of the uh, gospel coalition. He didn't say follow the leader of a denomination. He didn't say follow... Um, uh, the leader of your political party. He said, follow me. So discipleship is Jesus-centered, and it's fishing-focused. So when he, tell, he invites these guys to follow him, he says, the, the purpose that you're going to follow me is that you're going to begin a movement of gathering people to follow me. So it's Jesus-centered. It's fishing-focused. At the heart of it is this commitment to Christ and to gathering other people to follow him. Jesus uh, discipleship is Jesus centered. This commitment to follow King Jesus. So if you're just reading Matthew's gospel, it can give you the impression that this is the first time that Jesus has ever uh has ever met these these four guys on on the shore because it's the first time that it's mentioned in Matthew's gospel. But if you've read uh in John's gospel, it actually tells of an account where Jesus met all four of these guys, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He meets them while they are disciples of John the Baptist. So while John is out in the wilderness at the River Jordan baptizing people, these guys are, apparently there's some uh, messianic expectation. You remember the, the story of all these people coming up and asking John, are you the Messiah? And John said he... he Testified, said, I am not the one you've been looking for, but after me, he's coming, and I'm here to prepare the way for him. And so, one day, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus uh, as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. 
Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. So the first encounter that Jesus had with these guys is at, at the River Jordan, where, where John the Baptist publicly identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. And now, even though it seems like everybody had the wrong idea about what it meant for Jesus to be Messiah, they were expecting him to be some sort of political ruler that was going to come and lead an army and overthrow the, the Roman government. They had the wrong ideas that they were correct in identifying who he was. He was indeed the Messiah. And so, really the point that I want you to take away from this is that Jesus being the Messiah meant that he had authority, that he was God's anointed one, that he was the chosen one that was going to establish the kingdom of God. And this is a guy that you need to follow. This was a, a once in, in, not just once in a lifetime, once in history opportunity to be a part of this movement from a grassroots as it gets started. And so these guys follow him, but apparently, I mean, they were, they were still, you know, you got to live, you got to pay the bills. And so they would uh, probably, even when they went out to follow John the Baptist, they would intermittently go back and, and do some fishing and sell some fish to, to pay the bills. So, so Jesus is the Messiah. And then another theme I'd like you to be aware of is that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is the king. That is one of the major themes of Matthew's gospel. He presents Jesus as the true king of Israel, uh, the one who has legitimate right to rule the people of God. From the very beginning, Matthew chapter 1, you see that Jesus is from the line of the great King David. And all the Jew, Jewish people understood that the Messiah, the king of Israel, would come from the line of David. Matthew chapter 2 gives us a little narrative about how when Jesus was born, these men from the east show up, and they show up to talk to King Herod, the man who believed that he was the king of the Jews. And these these men from the east show up, and they say, hey, we've been studying astrology, and we, we there's a, this prophecy that there's going to be the king of the Jews born here. And can you tell us where he's at? And so it says that King Herod was upset because... He was the king of the Jews. So this, when Jesus shows up, he's a, he's a threat. And so, um, and that, of course, leads to the slaughter of a lot of, a lot of babies. Matthew is, is showing that, that Herod is a pretender and that Jesus is the one who is legitimately king of the Jews. Matthew 25, Jesus describes himself. He talks about the, the last day. He says, I'm going to sit on a throne and I'm going to judge the nations. I'm going to sit on a throne and I'm going to judge the nations. I'm going to have legitimate authority over all the peoples of the world to separate the sheep from the goats. Matthew 27, if you read the crucifixion narrative, throughout there's this divine irony where Jesus is presented as a king, but he's being treated with with humiliation. He's, He's They make a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they strip his clothes off of him and they put a scarlet robe onto his bloody back and they put a a reed in his hand as though it were a scepter and then they say hail king of the jews and they slap him and they beat him and then when he's at the uh when he's crucified and hanging on the cross the scribes and the pharisees are at the foot of the cross saying he's the king of israel let god save him if he wants him he saved others he cannot save himself he did not save himself because he wanted to save us. Matthew 28, finally, uh, 
Jesus walks up to his disciples when he gives them the final commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. So the reason that I'm belaboring this point is because you and I, uh, by virtue of, of the culture in which we live, we have a hard time understanding legitimate authority. We are, we are inherently suspicious of authority. Whenever an authority tells us something, we always want to fact check it. We always want to make sure that it's, that it's right. Um, Jesus is the legitimate authority over all of the nations. He is the true king of Israel. He's the true king of creation. And so when he speaks, we, we ought to do more than listen. We ought to act, right? We should take action. We should adjust our lives to what he says to do. And so when he says come, uh, back to our text in Matthew chapter 4, it says, while he was walking, he sees these two brothers casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me is what my translation says. That's kind of a weak translation. I don't know if you've, uh, the, believe it or not, the NIV probably translates it the best out of, out of any, all the translations I looked at. The NIV translates it, come, follow me. This word in Greek is, is not a, a gentle invitation. It's an imperative. It is an invitation, but it's a command too. It's like if the President of the United States called you and said, hey, I'd like you to come up to the White House for dinner. Well, that's an invitation, but it's not an invitation you would really say no to. Right? It's not, not really practical that you, that you would turn it down. If someone has weight, they have authority when they when they extend this command. It's an invitation, but it's more than an invitation. It's something that you should respond to, and so so it has this force of come on. So again, Jesus had already met these guys. John had already identified Jesus as the Messiah, right? And so when Jesus shows up, he says, "Hey, you guys, come on! I've got a wonderful plan for your life," as the gospel presentation says it. I've got I've got work for you to do. I want you to come and be with me. And he says, follow me. Come after me, literally in the, in the original language is what it says. And so, so when he says to follow me, he is telling them that he, in, in the first century, discipleship was not just, when, when Jesus invites these guys to come, to come be with him, he's not simply inviting them to hang out or to do life together, right? It's, it's, it's not informal. It's a very formal relationship. So disciples would follow their teachers and they would seek to imitate and emulate the life and the values of their teacher. Their goal was to be like the teacher. And so the, when, when this is so profound in John 14, when, when they're talking about how to get to God and, and one of his disciples says, Jesus, you can just show us the way. And Jesus said, you guys remember what Jesus' response was? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When they wanted to know how to get to God, Jesus pointed to himself. And the same is true for us. If we want to know what it is to, to internalize the gospel, if we don't want to know what it is to internalize the very nature and character of God... The place where we have to look is Jesus Christ. That's why the author of Hebrews says that God who spoke to us beforehand in the prophets, He's now in these last days, He's spoken to us 
definitively and in a more profound way by sending us his son, God himself taking on flesh, showing us how to live. And so if we want to know what God created us to be, we have to look to the person of Jesus Christ. And we can't allow ourselves to get sidetracked by externals. We've got to look to the person of Jesus Christ and internalize his character. And so when he says, follow me, these guys understood exactly exactly what he was inviting and commanding them to do. And so we see that his, his invitation to follow me, they respond with submission uh, twice. In the, well, let me explain a little bit about the structure of this passage. So you'll, it's obvious to you, I'm sure, that there are two little stories packed together here. So he's walking by the sea. He sees two brothers. He invites them to follow him. He will make them fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then he sees these two other brothers. And, and he sees them in the boat with their father. And he calls them, and immediately they leave the boat and their father and follow him. So whenever in the Bible, whenever you see stories repeated like that, that's the, the biblical author's way of underlining and emphasizing. So you have repetition, but you also have escalation. Because the in the first narrative, when he calls these guys to follow him, what do they leave behind? Nets representing their livelihood, right? And then in the second narrative, he says, follow me, and they leave behind what? They leave behind a boat and a family. family. So there's repetition, but there's escalation. So they're leaving behind livelihood. They're leaving behind maybe identity as fisher because they were casting nets in the sea because they were fishermen. And so they're leaving behind identity. They're leaving behind livelihood. They're leaving behind family even. And so, um, and so this twice in each account, it says that their response was immediate. That they knew who Jesus was. And when he invited them to follow him and be a part of what he was starting. And again, they had all the wrong ideas about what it was he was starting. They had no idea that following him was going to lead to a cross outside of Jerusalem. They could have never conceived of that. But they understood that that this is God's Messiah and wherever he's going, we ought to be there. And so immediately they drop everything and they follow Jesus. Secondly, they they made themselves available they left nets, again, identity, livelihood, family, and they said that there's nothing going on in my life right now that's more important than what Jesus is doing. And the same is true for us. I think the reason that we have a lot of people who are uh, professing believers who are failing to follow Jesus in discipleship is because they really don't believe that what Jesus is doing is more important than what they're doing. We've got our own agendas, we've got our own priorities, and we constantly allow those things to eclipse what God wants to do through us for Christ. So submission, availability, and they were teachable. Their goal was to learn to be like Jesus. And again, this comes out of that, that first century concept of, of being a disciple. They, their goal was to learn to be like Jesus. Shame on us that I think a lot of the times when we invite people to Christ, 
we're not inviting them to be like Jesus. We, we reduce the gospel to fire insurance. It's, it's purely about personal salvation. And I, I don't want you to mishear me because the gospel is about personal salvation. And, and your basic problem in life, all, all of our basic problem in life outside of Christ, is that our sin has separated us from God and we stand under the judgment of God because of sin. So it's, it's a, I don't want to minimize, that's a huge issue and it's a huge aspect of the gospel. But it is not the whole counsel of God. The, what Jesus is doing in bringing personal salvation to all of us is not just to deliver us from the fires of hell, but it is to give us, uh, as uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, to raise us to newness of life. So not just new life, but a new way of life. God is, God is reversing the curse and He's bringing us back and redeeming us and making us into the people that He always intended for us to be from the very beginning. And so, so our goal when, when we come to Christ ought to be to be like Jesus, to take on the very character of God as He's revealed it in the person of Jesus Christ. And so these are all things that should uh, characterize us. Submission, availability, and teach teachability. All right, second point. So discipleship is Jesus-centered, but discipleship is also fishing-focused. I, I believe that uh, th- this uh, passage often gets used and applied in reference to evangelism alone. Alone. Uh, so, so we when we think about fishing in in Christian church culture. We always think about evangelism, that, that initial point of contact when we're catching people for Jesus. I actually think that Jesus has more in mind than just evangelism. I think, I think this is actually kind of a parallel to Matthew 28, uh, where his main idea is making disciples. So I think when Jesus talks about fishing for people, he's talking about making disciples, which includes evangelism, but it goes beyond evangelism. Um, but definitely there is a, an emphasis on that, that bringing people in, uh, bringing people into this movement that Jesus is starting. And so discipleship is fishing focused. So a commitment to gather others to follow King Jesus. So I use the word gather here because, it, you know, when I, so the only way that I've ever fished has been with a hook and a rod. And you're, if you get two fish at a time fishing that way, it was a freak of nature, right? But so when these guys are talking about fishing, they're thinking of fishing with a net. They're thinking, I'm taking a net and I'm throwing it out there and I'm raking in everything that I can get. And we'll sort it out later. But I want, I want to get as many, as many as I can. So this is, so Jesus says that in the same way that these guys are fishing for people, they're throwing out the net, bringing people in. He says, you're going to be gathering up people for me. So Jesus, this project that Jesus came, the project that he started is a project of gathering people for God. And uh, to use the Mark Cahill's book title, The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven, everything else that the church does, we will be able to do in heaven. One thing we cannot do in heaven is gather people for God. Um, so this is the church's central and primary task that it's been given. This is the thing that Jesus primarily came to do. And, or came to begin in, in his, uh, uh, Robert Coleman in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, he says men were his method. 
men and women of God are his method for, for gathering people for God. But it's interesting that Jesus says, he, he, he says, I will make you fishers of men. The result of following Jesus' transformation. So when Jesus was walking by, he didn't see these two guys, or four guys, and think, man, you know, these guys have got some real potential. I mean, they, they're really got a good work ethic, uh, middle class, they got a little money, I think they could, you know, these guys might be, make good church planners. I should, uh, he doesn't see latent potential in them that just needs to be developed. He does, there's nothing about these guys that commend them to Jesus. But their response shows us that they were, I mean, I mean, in the, in the foreknowledge of God and the providence of God, these men were set apart from their mother's womb to serve Jesus in this role. And so, so God had prepared them through life experiences to, to be these people. So we, and we see through their response of dropping their nets, making themselves available, we see they had some good qualities. But none of these good qualities are what commended them to Jesus. Because Jesus says, what they need to be fishers of men, what they need to gather people for the kingdom of God, is something that only Jesus can provide. And He is going to provide. He says, I will make you. And kind of back to our, when we were thinking earlier about the misconceptions about what it means to be a disciple, He does not say, I will make you a good moral person. He doesn't say, I will make you a church member. Right? He says, I will make you Fishers of men, I will give you what you need to be about my priorities. Following Jesus results in transformation. When we give ourselves to Jesus' purposes, when we follow him and internalize his character, uh, we, we become more concerned about gathering people for Jesus because his heart beats in our chest. If you have no concern for gathering people it may because be because uh, your your devotion for Christ is waning, and so I think that's a legitimate question for us to ask ourselves. Um, or it, it may be that we just this is the first time you've ever heard this, and you've you've kind of been in a church culture where discipleship has been about those externals. And so I really want to challenge you this morning to search your heart and in your own life experiences and and see what is discipleship really about. So, fishers of people. Disciples' primary task is gathering people for Jesus. I've said that several times. Uh, in he, There's a wordplay going on, which is pretty clear even in English, when it says, uh, casting a net into the sea. He saw Peter and Andrew casting a net into the sea, and it says, because they were fishermen. And in, in uh, if you have a King James Bible, you know, it doesn't say fishermen, right? It says, anybody have a King James Bible? So, yeah, threw out our King James Bibles, didn't we? Okay, so in the King James it says fishers, because they were fishers. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers, same word, of men. He's going to take what they're doing and he takes a word play to say, I'm going to make you uh, into a, a fisher for the kingdom, uh, a fisher of men, uh, to gather people for me, he takes away, when we think about what Jesus took away from these guys, he took away their livelihood, but he gave them a life. He took away, he took away pastime, but he gave them purpose. We can have 
a pretty good life. We can devote ourselves to to job skills and, and, and having a good career, having a good family, and we can still miss the purpose that God has for our life. And next week, we're going to look at Luke chapter 9, and we're going to really dig in more into that idea of the cost of discipleship, what it might what we might need to give up and how we make idols of the good things that God gives us. But by way of application, I just want you to consider a few questions. Uh, number one, is there anything that you need to drop to follow Jesus? Is there any even good things that your hands are full with? And, and you know, and, I, and I, we just did a series on work recently. And one, as I was preparing for this sermon, I, I don't want to come across that like the only valuable work is spiritual work. And so everybody should quit their jobs and become pastors. Um, I don't want to give that impression. God has placed us where he has us, but every every one of us has an opportunity to enter into this grander purpose that God has for us right where we are. For for the these men who would become apostle apostles, it did mean leaving their full-time vocation, and it may mean that for you God may call you to full-time ministry. And so it may mean leaving behind this this way of livelihood. But it doesn't have to mean that. We can in, enter in to the ministry that God has for us right where we are. And a, lo- a lot of people, I had a conversation with a friend recently that was just talking about uh, at his workplace, he, he, feel, he says, I feel like I'm doing what anybody could do. And so he's struggling with feeling fulfillment in his work. And I said, what, what makes your role unique, what God wants to do in your workplace may not have anything to do with the task that you're doing, but it may have to do with the relationships that God has surrounded you with. Those are unique relationships and you have a unique opportunity to reach into those lives and make an impact that nobody else could. So I don't know if God will keep him at that job forever, but I know that God can have a, a God does have a bigger purpose in the places where we live and the places where we work. And if we get caught up on thinking that my the actual task that I do has to be eternally significant, we all need to quit our jobs, right? I mean, the, the majority of us don't are not, are not engaged in eternally significant tasks. But God has surrounded us with eternally significant relationships. And it's those people that God cares about. Is there anything that you need to drop to follow Jesus? So, so in the rhythm and flow of your life, are there things that are taking up your time, that are taking away the margin that you need to engage in the mission that God has given you to do, to be a fisher of people? Whether it's, and I'm not, I'm not picking on anybody, I'm not, whatever, just if it's, if it's, maybe you're binge watching Netflix too much. Maybe you're, I mean, could be, maybe you're given too much time to the task, the, 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 the work task that, that you're doing. Maybe you need to work a little less. Maybe you're finding too much of your identity in work. And so, so is there anything that you've got your hands full of that if you, if you dropped it, that you would have more margin to be, um, who God's called you to be? I was reading a Barna study recently and it said the number one it's really funny, actually. is a study on discipleship. It's called The State of Discipleship. And they asked church leaders, what's the number one reason that people don't pursue discipleship? And then they asked church members, what's the number one reason that people don't pursue discipleship? Number one reason that church leaders gave why people don't pursue uh, discipleship was lack of commitment. 
uh, like 86% of church leaders said they're just not, people are just not committed enough. Number one reason that the average person in the pew gave was, I'm too busy. General busyness of life was the number one reason. I think those may be the same answer interpreted different ways, right? I think the pastors may be interpreting general busyness as lack of commitment. So I'm not uh, picking on anybody or saying that anybody's lacks commitment, but I'm saying that if we want to prioritize being who God has called us to be, if we want to get our priorities in line with Jesus, it may mean examining the busyness of our lives and deciding what we're going to say no to so that we can say yes to what God is calling us to. Does that make sense? Lastly, here's a question for you. Are you submitted to Jesus? Do you really understand that he's Lord? Do you really understand that he's king of creation? And are you willing to say, put your yes on the table before you know what the question is? Are you willing to say yes to him before you know what he's asking? I think these guys were. That's why when he when he called, they dropped it and they followed. Are you available for Jesus, and this goes back to what we were just talking about. Are you are you willing to re rework your priorities to make room for what Jesus is calling you to do? And then, are you learning from Jesus? Are you when you read the Bible, are you just learning some good principles for life, or or, or are you reading it with conviction in your heart that that who Jesus is is not who I am, and I, I need to bring my life into alignment with who He is. I need to grow. I need in, in, in patience and love and kindness and goodness and self-control and all the things, the fruits of the Spirit that Jesus demonstrated in His life. Am I seeking Him for those things to see the life of Christ manifested in my life so that people can see Jesus through my life and so that they can be gathered to follow Jesus, right? Are you learning from Jesus? The number one, uh, I would argue that the number one discipleship strategy in the New Testament is the imitation of Christ. And the word imitation is not the most used word related to discipleship, but if you read through the, the New Testament, you find the, I, the concept of following the, the example of Jesus Christ or of following the example of godly leaders, you see it everywhere. I mean, first of all, the Gospels are written in large part to give us a picture of Jesus that we can emulate. And then if you read through Paul's letters and Peter's letters, you find over and over again them pointing to, like Philippians 2, this mind, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you have Peter pointing to the example of Jesus suffering without complaint as a model for us to follow. So so uh, you have uh, the Apostle Paul saying, imitate me even as I also imitate Christ. Uh, be imitators of God as beloved children. So you just have this constant call to imitation. And so I want you to realize that when we, when we advocate spiritual disciplines, uh, reading your Bible and praying, the goal is not reading your Bible and praying. The goal is encountering the person of Jesus Christ and allowing the Holy Spirit to cultivate that character in you. And we do that through, through prayer and through Bible study. That's what it is to learn from Jesus. And this is, and, and of course I'm, I'm preaching to you and I'm preaching to myself. I, I feel I'm, I'm covered up in conviction as I just, the more I reflect on discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus. Terry and I have been having some, some hard conversations about, about 
what does it look like for us to to really follow Jesus in in every area of our life and to and to and so so it is it, it is a, a a journey of progress. It's marked by progress, not perfection. And so I don't want anyone to to leave feeling a, a heavy yoke of of guilt, but I want you to feel challenged and spurred on to pursue Christ because He's not calling you to something that's not doable. He has promised everything that you need to walk with Him and to have His life manifest in you. Let me uh, pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray even in these uh, last few minutes, God, that you would speak to hearts. God, How show us how we can specifically apply these things to our life situations. Show us what next step, however small that next step may be, to, to make margin in our life to follow Jesus Christ, to be fishers of people, um, that we would understand that as our primary purpose, God, that we would not be distracted with all the other things going on in our life, but that we would really really make it a priority to uh, seek out those who need to hear about you and that we would call them to follow you and that we would also take responsibility for um, their spiritual formation and leading them in that. Um, so I just pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray for your power to work mightily here. And uh, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.